This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, let's blow up the bad ending. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show that is the future of the past. My name is Gep, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week it's movie time, which means that since we're between seasons, we have an actual guest star who this time uh, does things with rockets and, and space and all kinds of yeah. things. The, the, and the, and the arrows and the spacens. Yes, the design's arrows for space. <laughs> the aerospace engineer and one of Dr. Izix's old friends, uh, Max Fagan. Hello. Hello, Gepwin. Hello, Dr. Izix. I'm delighted to be here to talk about one of my favorite movies and uh, most beloved pieces of science fiction in any genre, in any media, uh, Tomorrowland. I'm just so excited to talk about it with you all tonight. <laughs> so thank you for having me on. Excellent. Yes, well, welcome. Welcome. And uh, you know, this will hopefully be uh, more revelation-y about Tomorrowland than it is about our past relationship and our history. <sighs> Which may or which may or may not be scandalous and horrifying, or may just be a delightful friendship that has spanned uh, college as well as uh, three years of your um, of your dragonborn corrupting the mind of my young dwarf in a uh, in our Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Gepwin, if uh, you ever hear me talk about my Tuesday game, Max is part yep. of that. Oh, excellent. Yes, yes you've uh, had he, stories. He, he, <laughs> yes, uh, he is the innocent one. Uh, I am the not so innocent one. <laughs> Anywho, Tomorrowland. Uh, we got we got uh, like some uh, some things about like actors, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So Tomorrowland is, of course, a 2015 Disney film, uh, based at least slightly on the Disneyland land. It's an interesting concept for a movie. This is kind of the era where they were like we did pirates of the caribbean and that was really cool and uh we're not sure why so let's just try to make movies out of anything we can think of yes from the same motivation that got us the haunted mansion movie uh and uh possibly though unconfirmedly escape from tomorrowland so we got possibilities of the future (gasps) in the future movie possibly i keep finding things about this this uh, everything about this movie has always been in development hell and yes it had a it had a very tortured development uh that did not end once production began there uh was extensive reshoots um there uh which is i i think you will see why the structure can be a bit of a mess uh because of those reshoots and uh, i would absolutely love to see what brad bird's the uh, d- d- director, uh, Brad Bird, who uh, directed this movie. I would absolutely love to see what his take would have been on this if it weren't for those reshoots and rewrites. Uh, but the product that we got was the product of a uh, somewhat tortured development history and reshoot. Indeed. So that development yeah. history was written by... Uh, Damon, Damon Lindelof. Lindelof? Yeah. That's a hard one for me. Yeah, and... of... Um, of, of <laughs> such notorious fame of such tight scripting as lost yes <laughs> yeah and also my favorite which was such a, a a good idea and such a bad movie uh cowboys and aliens mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah that one. a guy a guy known for being excellent on concept but not so great on follow-through 
<laughs> Other things we might know him from are Prometheus and Star Trek Into Darkness, which is a little yes. relevant for everybody here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Star Trek one. Into Darkness, yeah, the, the one that everyone kind of wants to ignore because it makes life easier that way. Yeah, and also uh, also co-written by Jeff Jensen, who is a writer and journalist who's known for um, comics and things, but was also a story editor on the Watchmen series. Mm -hmm. And finally, the one that anybody's heard of is Brad Bird, who's very well-known writer-director of The Incredibles, um, wrote and or directed movies like the iron giant and uh, mission impossible ghost protocol so he's you've definitely heard of him if you're if you're here yeah so three three cooks in the kitchen known for uh having very specific visions about how they want their products to come out um and uh i i think i think you will see aspects of all of their contributions and creativity making their way onto this film and in 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 some cases they come together in a beautiful combination of aesthetic cinema but in other cases it's very clear that there's uh somewhat conflicting visions of how this story was supposed to work yes so uh yeah i will admit at this point yeah i thought the movie was all right uh but there are things that are like this structurally doesn't make a whole lot of sense and this bit is kind of just really awkward and doesn't fit well with the rest of the movie but eh, I still had a good time, so. Mm. Oh, there, oh, yeah, there's oh. definitely structural things. And I think my main criticism, which we'll get into because I can't keep my mouth shut, um, is the same criticism I've had with basically every Brad Bird movie. So I don't know who hurt him. Um, <laughs> but I guess we'll try to figure this out as part of, as part of our talk. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Because well, uh, yeah, the, the, the thing that I love the most about this movie is the theme of hope and optimism in the face of a... Um, of a pop culture landscape that doesn't really seem to prioritize that. I love how this film is, in a sense, an answer to... Th 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 this film was, in a sense, a victim of its own crusade. Um, a lot of the... Th uh, it, it set itself up as an answer to apocalyptic and pessimistic and dystopian media, um, and uh, in a sense was... Un unappreciated and taken down because people considered that a little bit uh, corny and um, out of sync with the uh, with what I think people expected big uh, big cinema to be big cinema and big movie projects to be at the time. But I I am hopeful that the further and further it recedes into the past, the more and more likely it will be to uh, experience its own uh, revival and reappreciation as the in the position that it deserves. Yeah, because yeah. Um, before we move on to the actors, one of the common stories that you hear about this movie is they put a ton of money into it, which you can tell with the special effects and actors yes. and everything that they've got going. Uh, it was a major box office flop, and um, Disney decided that the reason for that was not any of the development hell, structural problems, story issues, etc., but that people just don't like original stories anymore. And that's why we've gotten so nothing more but remakes. Marvel movies since. Yep. It's... More remakes. <laughs> yep. It... Was it animated before? It is. It... Well, now it's not. <laughs> uh, 
very, very unusual for to be, for a Brad Bird film that uh, for Brad Brad Bird film to one not be animated. Um, Brad Brad Bird is most famous for his animation, but also for a Brad Bird film to not be well received. This remains the only Brad mm-hmm. Bird film to not receive higher than a fifty percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it remains his only uh, box office uh, bomb. But not not a bomb, but not a financial success by the metrics of any of his other films, um, and uh, which is why most of his, uh, m- 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 as you pointed out, many of his many of his films he's done since then have been follow-ons and not original properties. Uh, so if this is a uh, if this is Brad Bird's take on an original property, I am incredibly thankful that we're going to get it because he may uh, he may decide not to make uh, original uh, original properties again since uh, this and kind of Ratatouille are his only two big ones that have been. Completely original stories. Also, uh, he's apparently the screenwriter for Batteries Not Included. But uh, oh yeah, I forgot that that was in here. Yeah, that was a weird yeah. one. Interesting. Yeah. I do like that movie. Uh, have you seen that one, Max? I have not. No. Is this a uh, is this an animated film or uh, uh, no? No, it's you know, live action. Uh, basically, the plot is there's a couple uh, uh, small saucer like aliens, aka about the size of like a frying pan each, come to Earth and hang out with some folks in a building. Yeah, alien robots fight gentrification. Nineteen eighty-seven. Yes. Ah, asterisk batteries not included. Well, we know we we, we know that's why it bombed. You never put punctuation in your movie title. We learned that with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) So we also have actors. Um, As with any large movie, there are way too many actors. I'm going to name a few as we go through if they become relevant. Also. Uh, as for the main cast, I'm going to mostly assume you know who these people are because you know who these people are. <laughs> yes. Oh, we have George Clooney who plays an adult Frank Walker who you know from imagining the name George Clooney. <laughs> you know, uh, alternatively, if you really need to, uh, to to pin him down to something, he was in Combat High. <laughs> oh, right. That's that's where I know this guy from. This th- there and nowhere else. Uh, of course Britt robinson is playing casey newton she's not been in a bunch that i was familiar with her biggest film before this was something called the longest ride uh, she's also been in the space between us a dog's purpose and something called ask me anything i don't know what any of those are a dog's purpose sounds like a train wreck just based on the title Space Between Us, another favorite uh, for a rare combination of uh, sci-fi and um, young adult romance. You don't often see those two put together, and I think The Space Between Us does it admirably well. Yeah, I I recall uh, seeing trailers for that, uh, you know, in ages past. uh, Sort of like on my, uh, if I see it on TV, I'll I'll check it out sort uh, sort of range there. And Hugh Laurie is playing David Nix, who you should know him from Black Adder and Something About a Doctor. Yeah, some sort of uh, like uh, apartment building. A very, How, uh, you know. a very, ho- a very homey show. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I guess it's uh, fitting he uh, gets his leg uh, messed up by the end. Anyway. <laughs> yep. And he's using his natural British accent in this role, so you know it's got to be a villain. Yes. Yes. Or a prince. <laughs> A prince or a villain. I like that. Yeah. Those are the only two options for a British person. I mean, those are the only roles I've seen him play with a British accent. Did you um have you have you ever seen the uh, the TV show he did with Stephen Fry called A, a Bit of Fry and Laurie? No, I haven't gotten a chance to no. check that one Class, out. Classic British comedy. Um, him and Stephen Fry, uh, I think it ran for like three seasons on the BBC in the eighties. Um, very very funny. 
uh, especially when you get two two people of the comedic chops of Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie together just being good old British funny. <laughs> <laughs> and we have another British actor, Raffi Cassidy, who is playing Athena. She's from England and is in English shows like Spanish Flu, which I haven't particularly heard of. She was in Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh, Dark Shadows, the movie, and most recently was in the Netflix adaptation of White Noise. Yeah, very talented actress who I'm glad is uh, is writing the uh, writing the experience she got on this uh, on this film. Um, yes, she's uh, she she she's a, a kid actor in a big film. There's always a lot of pressure on them for that, and, and even though she is playing a robot, uh, she still manages to inject quite a lot of humanity mm. into the role, and uh, I, I'm very very pleased with her performance. And uh, finally, for the purposes of our principal cast, we have Thomas Robinson as young Frank Walker, who at the time of the movie was a child actor. He's now in his 20s because that's how time works. (laughs) Six minutes later. Oh, wow. You're like 40, aren't you? Um, the one big movie that he's been in that we might have heard of otherwise was the 2010 Alice in Wonderland. I couldn't find a lot of information on who he was in that. But he's he's, he's kind of just been around since this that was one criticism that i did hear about this movie is they had good child actors and they didn't really do a lot with them because the movie got to be a little bit of a mess but having good child actors is such a boon that that it yeah. felt really bad that they didn't do as much as they could with them mm-hmm. yeah getting a, a good child actor in like hollywood is like the holy grail uh, effectively as they say and mm-hmm. uh to get more than one is like that's impossible. You just you just can't. <laughs> yeah, stru- structural problems with this movie exist, but I don't think anyone has faulted any of the performers or any of the performances as being mm-hmm. subpar. Ev- everybody is well cast. Everyone is playing mm-hmm. their role to perfection, um, and uh, and no, the the performers are not the problems with this movie. Mm-hmm. None of them are slumming it. Aye. So we open on Frank Walker explaining why the future sucks now. Uh-oh. Right. Yeah. Back in my well, day, they had better futures. <laughs> right. Why the why the future stopped being something we look forward to and started being something we fear. Yeah. Back when we had to walk to the World's Fair uphill both ways. <laughs> so back in the day, uh, 1964 World's Fair, young Frank brings a large duffel bag up to a counter where David Nix is sitting, apparently offering 50 bucks for cool inventions. And, uh, Which, by the way, this was a real thing that happened at the at the 1964 World's Fair. There was indeed a fifty dollar prize for a uh, for the for an invention contest. Well, that's fun. Excellent. Hmm. So Frank's brought a nitro powered jetpack um, in full bicycle red ray gun punk. It's very. I do like the designs. <laughs> oh yes. Was there yes. was there ever a better symbol of a uh, of a of a glorious future than a rocket pack? So David is almost impressed. Um, his creepy child assistant Athena is even more impressed, but as it turns out, Frank's jetpack doesn't work because it has what looks like a very minor balance issue that makes it go sideways instead of up, um, mm-hmm. which I think is still pretty impressive. Like put a put a five pound weight on the back of that thing and you're golden. Really? Indeed. <laughs> yep. This 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 is one of the two. This is one of the two reasons why real jetpacks uh, don't work. One <laughs> is the center of thrust is misaligned with your center of mass, so it just tends to make you faceplant. Uh, and the other problem is uh, heat-resistant pants. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you know, like uh, the uh, Rocketeer had, had flight pants. 
poofy. Max, do you, do you have flight plants, pants like that? Funny you should mention that. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the fraternity that Dr. Isaacs and I were uh, in together uh, gave us house names. My house name was The Rocketeer after that character. I have pants exactly like his in the movie, and they are indeed flame-proofed. Uh, because I fully intend to make a functional replica of his pack at some point, and I need the flame-proof pants. Very nice. Nice. <laughs> Though if it runs on alcohol, it shouldn't burn quite as hot, but then it probably exactly. doesn't actually produce <laughs> thrust. So. Which, is, yeah. which is helpful. Which is helpful. I would never consider doing this if it ran on uh, Frank's fuel of nitro. Frank is correct <laughs> that nitro is not, a, uh, is not a fuel you want to use in something you're wearing on your back. So this obviously impressive invention that a kid built in his garage out of vacuum cleaner parts is worthless because it only mostly works. Um, Frank thinks that it would be cool and inspiring to see flying people going around, but again, as David points out, uh, it doesn't work. So go away, small child. Oh, uh, while Frank is sulking, Athena sits down and tells him not to turn around, which he immediately does, and to look at five o'clock, which he is confused by. Um, I guess it's kind of fun that our genius kid is an idiot, but I do think Indiana Jones did this joke better. Frank's already Frank's already living in the digital age. He doesn't understand hands on hands of a clock. Yeah, I'm sorry. I invented a clock that just tells me what time it is. <laughs> I don't have to look about this, you know, circle business anymore. Bah. So he sees David walking along with a group of other adults. Uh, Athena hands him a pin and tells him to count to 20 and then follow them. He grabs his jetpack, runs after them, and sees them get on a boat for the small world, which of course did debut, did debut at the World's Fair before being moved to Disneyland, as Pepsi-Cola presents Walt Disney's It's a Small World. So uh, make sure to uh, bring your homemade Pepsi along and everything will be great. And don't drink the water, it's not Pepsi-Cola. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. Yeah, that's why they had Nuka-Cola water in, uh, in Fallout when they did the bad, that bad expansion. I hate to say it, but Simpsons did it. <laughs> yeah. I Simpsons am the Lizard Queen! American Dad <laughs> did it. Everyone did it. <laughs> just don't, don't drink the water on It's a Small World. Just, just don't even go on It's a Small World. Nothing good happens on It's a Small World. The group gets in their boat, but the line attendant tells everyone else they need to wait. Uh, Frank pushes by and jumps over to a waiting boat that is empty, even though I guess all the other boats were full. Maybe they just need to leave space. Uh, it's floating just behind David and company. Frank enters the ride, and a small lighthouse laser scans the pen that Athena gave him and stops the boat and sends it down a hidden ramp under the ride, where he finds a dock and an automated voice tells him to get into a small building, and inside the same voice tells him that transport's going to happen in 10 seconds and he can't reach helmets, uh, but it doesn't matter because apparently the head protection wasn't un wasn't necessary and there's no notable brain damage after the thing goes off. <laughs> well, that's good, but uh, I'm still a little worried about the uh, laser pointer just kind of, you know, shooting out like that. You know, if it misses, it's going to get you in the eye. It was the 60s. Laser yes. safety standards weren't developed until the mid-80s or something. Hmm, <laughs> True. Note to self, be careful when I time travel. So Frank steps outside, sees David and Athena flying away in a hover car of some description. Uh, Frank, boy genius, walks past a barricade to follow the flying car and almost immediately runs into an automated construction robot that pushes him off the edge of a platform. Very luckily for mm -hmm. him, there's another platform immediately below him, but his jetpack does shatter a little bit. Well, I guess uh, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board or maybe the tool shed to Whatever we got handy. So another construction bot grabs his jetpack, does some basic repairs, solders some stuff, 
and fixes it for him. Some guards then show up and scare Frank off the second platform. Apparently this one was the bottom of the platforms because he just starts falling for like yep. a insanely the- long time. Oh yes. Key first the first indication of the theme of the movie, Frank has to up to now been working on his own. Uh, and unable to achieve his dreams, but the second that he is able to collaborate with another intelligent being, in this case, the robot, uh, he's able to accomplish what he's been trying to do. Yeah. Uh, Indeed, that's the reason everybody loves robots. They're good to collaborate with. Yeah, they're helpful. So very conveniently, uh, his jetpack is also falling next to him, and he grabs it. He takes a second to enjoy the view of a future city when the clouds break a little bit. And he puts the jetpack on and flies down to where Athena and David are standing. Um, but by then, according to old Frank, everything went to hell. Uh, we don't get the rest of this particular story. We'll have to infer it later. Yeah. But his companion, who is our actual main character, is Casey, who is a 25-year-old high school teenager. And she interrupts <laughs> and takes over the story. Because unlike him... She's an optimist. So we get some flashback of her early life, which I think is mostly there just to establish that she did have a mother so that they can Disney kill the mother later. Uh Uh-oh. In in an early version of the script, the mother was a terminal cancer uh, patient and uh, does, in fact, die. Uh, As you pointed out, Disney must kill one of the parents. It is Disney law. Yes. I believe there was also uh, something about, like, an uncle and, like, their family that was living in the same house, too. Oh, yes. uh, Yes. They vanished, too. The original story had the whole Spielbergian extended family living with them, but it uh, it was removed in one of the rewrites. As it, the rest of the rest of Casey's family is uh, not relevant to the main story. It's just her, her dad, and her younger brother. So we skip ahead to um, an undefined, probably present-ish time period, uh, where Casey is sabotaging cranes that are ready to dismantle uh, something. Um, it's sounds really simple but uh the visual language of the movie isn't really communicating what's happening and we find out two scenes later that this is in fact a rocket launch platform at cape canaveral yep but i know what i know what that looks like (laughs) why don't you i mean you you two might know exactly what a rocket launch platform looks like by sight to me this looks like the experimental power building they have outside of asu yeah, well, I guess I guess in the visual language of the movie, it didn't really uh, it didn't really convey very well. But I'd hope that as it soon as as it quickly becomes clear, you know, Casey lives in Florida by Cape Canaveral. Her father is a NASA engineer. Hopefully, it becomes clear after that. But yes, this was this was shot on site at um, uh, the uh, at Cape Canaveral at the actual pad that uh, at the time uh, was not being used to launch space shuttles anymore, but was in fact being repurposed to launch. Uh, the SpaceX Falcon 9. Cool. Yeah, this uh, this is a central thing with her character that probably because of rewrites and development hell uh, really doesn't go anywhere. Um, we have no reason to think that this would do anything or accomplish anything. She's just doing it because she's mad, I guess. Well, yeah, it's 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 a good place to start the character. It's cl- It clearly establishes her motivations as someone who doesn't want... Um, doesn't want the great accomplishments of the past to be forgotten or stopped, but also as someone who doesn't have the direction or uh, specific talent necessary to stop it. So it, it, it establishes Casey as a person of desire, but not necessarily action. At night, a mysterious figure takes a pin like Frank had and uh, scans Casey's DNA from a piece of hair and hides it in her bike helmet. 
the next morning we meet Casey's dad, who's a NASA engineer, who is somehow in charge of dismantling the platform from earlier and then will be out of a job, so I guess that means that uh, they're shutting down NASA or something. Well, that kind of sucks. Max, do something. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I promise. So he tells her that the platform is going to be turned down. It's inevitable. And uh, she says the thing about how there are two wolves inside you and you need to feed the right one. And um, this entire movie's message is really based on this, which I know that this movie predates it by a few years. But the only thing I can think of is how this became a really stupid meme in 2018. And there's two wolves inside you. One of them's gay. One of them's hungry. <laughs> no, I haven't heard. I haven't heard that meme. Um, well, I, I guess both of the. Ah, no, 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 never mind. I guess both. I was about to say both of those are apropos, as because um, the, the 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 thing about the thing about this story is it's supposed to indicate that despair versus optimism is a choice, but that's definitely not the case if one of the wolves is uh, gay and one of the wolves is straight. So I don't know how that. <laughs> salvages no, it, the salvages well, the other one's the hungry metaphor. it might be gay too so <laughs> but yeah in terms of the the messaging of the movie yeah it's about you know the, the you know the dichotomy there the the hope versus the pessimism sort of vibe so casey goes to school where they are teaching the apocalypse basically it um the every every class is about how there's an apocalypse and we're going to have an apocalypse and everything is being an apocalypse and um, in every class, Casey raises her hand, and by the end, we see what she's going to ask. She asks whether we can do anything about said apocalypse, and it is treated by the movie like this is the only time a student has ever asked this question in the history of the school, and the teacher just goes like, what? You mean we do things about things? That's not how stuff works. I'm a little more uh, you know, thinking that you know, the teachers are surprised that anyone's paying attention. I mean, that too. As someone who sometimes raised their hands to ask weird questions. I kind of felt like I, I personally identified with her in this moment. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, I don't read this montage of Casey in school as meant to be. This is this is literally about school. I read it more as this is what it's like to be in a world with a negativity bias, whether it's on social media or in conventional news. There are definitely times and places where you have a negativity bias. Maybe maybe elementary or high school is not that place, but there are definitely places in the modern world where you are, for various reasons, more likely to be told things are bad, things are awful, there's nothing you can do about it. And in those spaces, I think it is important to speak up and say things are bad, but here are some of the good things. Here are the things we are doing to mitigate the bad things. Here are the trends that actually are positive, and even for the things that are bad, what can we do to fix it? So that night, Casey goes out to sabotage cranes again, but this time the police are basically just waiting for her. So uh, she gets arrested. Her dad bails her out immediately, so she doesn't have to stay in jail long. And then she's given her stuff back by Colonel Chekhov from Stargate SG-1. Wait, really? Yeah. The Russian general who uh, or, or colonel uh, who was always like the Russian representative whenever they did stuff involving Russia. It's that guy. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Wow, I learned something new about this movie. Thank you, Gaffin. <laughs> yeah, there's a. Uh, in fact, uh, I think uh, you know at least one of the teachers is uh, uh, one of the regulars of uh, on from uh, Stargate Atlantis too. So. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't catch that one. I need to look that up. <laughs> so she finds the pin in her stuff, and when she grabs it, she's suddenly in a field of golden wheat with a city in the distance. She drops the pin, and she's back in jail. She tries again, walks towards the city, and hits her head on a wall. Um, which makes her not want to touch that pen anymore. 
There's also a guy in a hat, and uh, for a little bit I was like, this guy's going to like mean something at some point, but he ends up not being that important. No, he's just like, yeah, that's a trip, right? Those pens. <laughs> hey, man, have you done pen lately? <laughs> so on the drive home, she tries to tell her dad about what's going on, but he's just angry that she committed felony vandalism of government property. Like, I think he's, you he's know. kind of kind of justifiably upset at this point. Un- understandably so. Case- Casey is clearly angry, and she's not directing that anger in a uh, towards anything productive, <laughs> only destructive. It is interesting that this is one of the few times in any movie I have seen the thing where the protagonist actually tries fully to explain what's going on to anyone, and, you know, obviously they don't understand it, but... It's one of the only times I've seen someone go like, let me try to tell you what's happening. Yeah, just do the thing and it'll make sense. But, you know, all right, let's try to try to get through this. Come on, come on, let's go. So yeah, one, one of the only times in this movie when there will be an abundance of explaining. Yeah. <laughs> so he grabs the pen and nothing happens. And he just uh, keeps it in his pocket because he's angry at her about caring about a pen and apparently something that he thinks she's made up. So that night, Casey sneaks into her dad's room, takes the pen, is back in the field. Uh, she tries walking again and walks into a wall. Uh, we, we think we would have learned by now, but apparently not. <laughs> um, she mimes her way along the wall until she finds a door. Then she immediately falls downstairs. Whoops. This is the point in the movie where I'm like, are we not supposed to believe that this character is some sort of genius? There, there, there are there are no polymath geniuses in this uh, in this movie. Everyone is everyone is a genius or talented in their own direction. And Casey's obviously does not include invisible worlds. <laughs> I, I, I'm always reminded of uh, you know when the stories uh, I got shared when I was uh, doing a uh, research experience for undergraduates at uh, Fermilab. The uh, guy I was uh, you know uh, working for. Uh, talked about you know, like yeah i've worked with a lot of uh, really smart people but like there's this one guy that you know could do all this crazy uh, stuff involving the mathematics of uh, you know you know uh, subatomic systems but you know the moment you give him a ladder and then distract him he'll turn around with the ladder in hand full body knocking everything o- uh, you know off the shelves and anyone over nearby so yeah it feels like that so casey has now learned her lesson and decides to do some real world bike riding through the city not holding the pen so that she can stop running into stuff. Probably a good idea. She reaches a conveniently empty field that is also the site of the city in the alternate pin reality. And it is everything she's ever dreamed of. There's jetpacks, there's mag trains, there's attractive people in form-fitting spacesuits. Uh, one of them looks right at her, says, we're saving you a seat on the rocket, but then uh, suddenly it's hard for her to move and she sees that the pin actually has a countdown timer on the back and when it runs out, she is just standing in the middle of a lake. I do appreciate the uh, effect of her actually entering the lake when she's in the experience. It's like, I'm suddenly having so much trouble moving and the world is splashing. What? Oh. Yeah, that that scene is the, the, the whole what's what's called the pinvitation sequence, the sequence from when she touches the pin to when the pin runs out of battery. One of my favorite moments in all of cinema history. Uh, that 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 entire scene it's all filmed as if it's one continuous shot um it's mm-hmm. not really it, it, yeah. it's it's one continuous shot in the same way that 1918 is one continuous shot but there is just so much visual information packed into such a short period of time and it and it, you can you can get you can get away with it because brad ba- brad bird is an animator at heart he's, he's an yes. animation director he's used to packing a lot of visual information into his frame 
And this is really the best case in the movie where that really shines through. I've watched a few films with a lot of visual information recently, and this is definitely, you know, probably in the top two in terms of, you know, you know, bits where there's like, I can't really focus on everything because there's just so much going on. So Casey comes home with her phone waterlogged from her little John to the lake, so that's not working anymore. Which I guess also good way to immediately eliminate the why didn't they just use a cell phone thing. So yes. give them credit for thinking that one. Uh, so she gets her little brother to break into her dad's computer to find more information about the pen. It's apparently a collector's item celebrating the World's Fair. Uh, it's the only place online that's talking about them is a vintage comic book shop and collectible store in Texas. Last from the past. Excellent. So she decides to take a bus from Florida to Texas, uh, asks her brother to lie about how she's going camping with some friends. Uh, after she leaves, her brother is almost immediately approached by Athena, who wants to know where Casey went. She also knows the brother's name, that he's lying, and she's very concerned about who she might have gone to talk to about this pen. Hmm, there might not be people that I want uh, her talking to right now, at least before I give her a property briefing. So, here, kid, have some Oreos. So, Casey arrives at the comic book store, which is run by... Uh, Catherine Han and Keenan Michael Key. So it's a comic comic book shop. Yes. Also excellent, excellently cast. These two do a wonderful job, and I'm sorry we don't get to keep them around for longer. Also, their names are Hugo and Ursula for uh, you know the the guy that was the Hugo Awards named after, and Ursula K. Le Guin. So this is also a uh, comic shop that's an excuse for Disney to show off every franchise that they had been buying up recently at this point. Also true. Yeah. <laughs> Including all of Brad Bird's. There's a there's an Iron Giant in there. There's a Mr. Incredible doll. But yes, all of the Disney-verse as well. Yeah. And Star Wars and <laughs> Robbie the Robot. Gort. So Cassie asks about the pen. Both shop owners are very interested but don't want to tell her anything unless she tells them where she got it. Uh, like, you know, did a mysterious little girl give it to you by any chance? You know, those, those mysterious little girls that are running around? <laughs> uh, Casey doesn't know because she just, you know, found it. It's given to me in a evidence locker. Yeah. So uh, go talk to the police chief. But uh, chief. Keenan Michael Key grabs her interest by knowing what the pin showed her. And, you know, look at all this cool big city. So, you know, if you took all the geniuses and best people in the world and put them in one place with no politics or bureaucracy where they could build everything they wanted, etc., etc., etc. Ultimate utopia of science! That's it. The, the, the same prem premise that was explored in Meet the Robinsons, but better. So uh, they both get more and more pushy about the little girl who probably gave them the pen, and they pull out big light-up ray guns that look like toys, but actually make things explode. So uh, wh wh where do we get these? If they're collectibles, uh, I kind of want one. There's also a very funny deleted scene where Casey, in response, grabs another blaster off the wall, uh, meaning to defend herself, but it turns out to be an actual toy. So she's uh, hit, hitting, hitting them with nerf darts while they're pointing actual blasters at her. So they chase her around the store a bit until Athena throws a time bomb through the window, which freezes both of them in a bubble. Also a laser that's about to kill Casey. But Casey's hand is also in there. So she can't run away right now. And they need to wait for the time ball to collapse so that Athena can grab her away before the laser kills her. Uh, then beat up what are revealed to be two robot comedians and uh, run mm. outside before the pair of them self-destruct, blowing up the store, 
while Athena hotwires a car. They all drive away, and all of the Texas people nearby, who you can tell because they're wearing cowboy hats, are just don't care. They, one, they uh, one don't care at all. One, <laughs> one minor correction as Athena is going to insist. These are not comedian robots. These are audio anima comics. So it's like animatronic, but slightly different. Yeah, because it's the thing that Disney called things. So Athena reveals that she is the one who gave Casey the pen, uh, but Casey ran off before Athena could explain what was going on. Also, Athena is also one of these animatronic things, but <sighs> robot is easier to say. So we're going to say yes. that. Or android. Also, despite Casey freaking out, Athena gave her the last pen, so uh, you don't get to opt out. Sorry, you're my last chance. Well, what happened to everyone else that you gave these to? Don't I'm question it. I'm not allowed it. to answer yeah. that. <laughs> we're, not go we're not going to explain that. Just hold on. Hopefully nothing terrible. So back at the shop, the cops are confused, um, and apparently Secret Service guys show up. But as soon as they find a robot skull, the agents pull out ray guns and vaporize all of the cops before going after Athena and Casey. Oh, Dave That's Clark in, the in his five... But Dave Clark Five, a, a surprisingly yeah. high body count, remember, for a PG movie. Yes. Count, yes. count, count the deaths. There are, there are several deaths for a PG movie. So Athena is giving directions to Pittsfield, New York from Texas. So they have a bit of a ways to go uh, where they can find someone who can take them to the place that the pen showed Casey. But if Casey keeps asking questions, Athena is going to shut down. And uh, she does. So Casey takes some time to call home, leaving a pretty unhelpful message, but at least she's, like, you know, letting her dad know where she is, I guess. It's like, I'm gone. Uh, I ran away. Don't worry. I'll try not to die. Uh, please come looking to me uh, for that whole, uh, you know, possible uh, felony thing. Uh, just tell him I'm busy. So Athena wakes up later, tells Casey that she's special. Also, she's too tried to drive. So this 11-year-old looking girl needs to take over. Hopefully no cops will, will drive by while they're <laughs> on the way. Uh, Casey wakes up having been dumped on the side of the road in front of Frank Walker's house. She is attacked by a dog that turns out to be a hologram. She's forced, pushed away from the front door by some sort of weapon machine thing uh, Frank tells her what she's looking for doesn't actually exist anymore the pin was an old commercial for a party that was cancelled decades before she was born hmm. well that's awkward but uh, Casey yep. still won't leave and eventually she sets some farm equipment on fire out of boredom uh, Frank runs out to put the fire out but it was a trick and it now lets Casey inside and he's locked out <laughs> that's actually a clever technique to uh, get someone to uh, come out of their uh, secret hidey hole like that Arson. She pokes around, finds a holographic video of young Frank trying to make Athena laugh. Um, he's very slowly catching on that she's a robot, but probably we're not going to find out uh, for a bit. But maybe he's, you know, disillusioned because his childhood crush turns out not to be human. Can't exactly grow up together. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> so Casey also finds a doomsday room with a big countdown clock and screens showing a bunch of horrible things happening all over the world. Also, another screen with a giant red 100% on it. Yeah, I got one of those too, uh, don't you? Yeah, you know, the the doomsday room. We all, we've all seen it. So it's at, it's at this point, almost an hour into the runtime, that the actual story comes into clarity. This is getting back to those structural problem yeah. questions. We're an, we're an yes. hour into the runtime, and the actual conflict has finally materialized. Our hero's journey is very meandering today. Yeah. Yes. So Frank gets back in, uh, is going to kick Casey out, but she demands to know what's going on. He asks her that if he could tell her exactly when she's going to die, would she want to know? 
and she, like most scientists and engineers, refuses to engage with a philosophical hypothetical. And that makes the screen flicker from 100% to 99.99%. Aha! Take that, uh, determinism! <laughs> so this confirms to Frank that she is super special uh, right before Secret Service agents show up. Um, apparently Frank agreed not to interfere with something and um, made a deal that he would either in not interfere or get killed. Um, so we're at that part of the equation, apparently. Hmm. Seems a little extreme. So uh, whatever this is, better be uh, worth the, uh, the whole death thing. Yeah. Uh, Frank leads her through the house, which is full of anti-robot booby traps. They get to a bathtub that's actually an escape rocket. And Casey makes a big deal out of grabbing her dad's hat, which is a plot point that we will drop later. I just thought I'd mention it. Once again, kicking off another excellently uh, shot scene, the whole house attack scene with the audio animatronics coming after them. Uh, not filmed as one shot, but also very visually rich, full of a lot of fun visual gags, and also not something I would expect out of a director unless they come from an animation background, just packing that much uh, that much creativity into so it, into such a short period of time is just one of the many reasons that I love this movie. Though unfortunately, it does show some of the structural problems with how, it, for some reason, every action scene in this movie feels slow and clunky in a way that kind of undermines any of the interesting visuals that they're doing. The whole house chase is a little bit it's a little bit confused in the way that it's edited and directed, so that all of the stuff just comes out of nowhere and the whole action scene just feels a little bit slow in a way that's really think, difficult to yeah. get excited about. I think it might have been a little bit better if we had more time to sort of explore the house first mm. uh, with maybe a don't touch that, don't touch that, well, don't touch that. That's the thing. Time I actually it. figured it out because one review I was reading compared this scene to Home Alone and that made it click for me that in Home Alone, one, they do show you the house and they show mm. him setting up everything and they don't need to explain anything that's happening because conceptually, you know what a paint can on a string does. Interesting. So you're, you're saying Home Alone did this better because Home Alone gives you planting and payoff, whereas here it's all payoff, payoff, yeah. payoff, payoff. Here payoff. it's just essentially science magic in the walls. Like he, he runs through yeah. a door, hits a button, and a magic thing happens that takes out a robot. And they do some creative things with it, but because every single thing is a complete surprise to the audience, it undermines the action scene a little bit. Interesting. That's an interesting way of, of seeing it. Kepman, you mean you don't have a giant uh, electromagnet in one of your walls? <laughs> yeah, this might be the difference of things because I come from an art background and not uh. engineering. <laughs> Well, you need to get a giant magnet in your wall, Gip, and we're going to have to fix this at some point. I have the one that I stick knives to. That's a start. So Athena comes back with a truck. She apparently led the robots here to motivate Frank. Thanks. And, uh, <laughs> so I guess that worked. Good job. They talk some pseudo-exposition in the car because we're not allowed to know what's going on yet, probably because of some of those aforementioned structural problems with how the movie's paced. So they talk about how the pens were destroyed, except for the dozen that Athena had. Um, Casey's super special, that's just why she got a pin. Um, there's some sort of thing and a place that we aren't allowed to know about yet because Casey's not supposed to know about it yet. Um, oh, also Frank has a bomb that will be important later. So, you know, remember there's a bomb. Yes, a kiloton bomb. So there's th th there's two reasons that I'm kind of willing to forgive the lack of clear exposition in this scene. I mean, they, there's no excuse for a lack of exposition in the previous road trip scene. We had time. There was nothing else going on. But in this this scene, 
Um, I think the reason why I'm willing to forgive the lack of clear exposition is because, one, the purpose of this scene is to establish that Frank and Athena have a past existing relationship that is no longer communicative. It, the purpose of this scene is to show the nature of the relationship between Frank and Athena and now adult Frank and Athena. No, which probably um, would work we, if we had gotten exposition earlier. Yeah, the, the the whole period where they had where Athena had to pretend to be asleep as a way to avoid giving exposition did that that I feel like they were better structural ways around. Yeah. Which also, yes, Athena was pretending to be asleep because Casey was annoying, not because she has an actual shut off program of someone's asking questions. Though it would have been kind of funny if Athena did start explaining things uh, after Casey let her drive, uh, but then Casey falls asleep like halfway through. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great way to fix it. And so the the audience gets to know what's going on, but you know she doesn't quite yet. So they need to go somewhere. Again, we're not finding out where things are quite yet, um, but it's important because it's where Frank's transporter is. Um, they spend a little while explaining how the transporter is going to make you lose 99% of your blood sugar, which would kill you. But, okay, yeah, so, fine. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that sounds like a terrible plan here. So would being disintegrated and transported across matter and space. That would also kill you, and far more effectively than removing all of your blood sugar. Yeah, well, we don't know how this transporter works. It's probably like consciousness magic, like Star Trek. Yeah. Well, it's powered by sugar. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the power of thought made manifest. Wait. Never so uh, they do transport somewhere. They get some Coke, which I guess fixes the blood sugar problem. Um, so I guess that was just a little. I don't know why that oh, was that, in uh, there, really. That wasn't, that, that wasn't Coke. That was It's a Small World Water. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of the thing is a hallucination, which actually makes a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you're going to get someone uh, to uh, travel to another dimension, that's usually a good way to do it. So they are now at the Eiffel Tower, because apparently this is as much exposition as we're going to get for a bit, so pay attention, I guess. Uh, Eiffel was a super special genius boy, and the Eiffel Tower is more than just a big metal spike. It's also a scanner that Eiffel, Jules Verne, Tesla, and Edison all collaborated to make because Tesla invented a way to scan things like other dimensions, which, of course, Edison tried to take credit for. And thus, the blood, bad blood began. Yeah, that's just an aside that they don't really mention, but okay. Frank, stay on topic. So there's rumors that these original founders of the society here um, set plus up a... Plus Ultra. Yeah, Plus Ultra, which sounds like an energy drink. So these rumors going around the Plus Ultra Society that these four set up a secret back door for themselves, and uh, you can unlock the door with an Edison tube that they just happen to have, and you can play on a display phonograph. So this starts to make the Eiffel Tower unfold, and a massive steampunk rocket comes out from underneath. Um, this Freaking is epic. pretty cool yes. looking <laughs> as rocket designs. Um, I question this being a secret backdoor. <laughs> yes. pa- you know, pa- Paris has lots of hidden catacombs, but yeah. I'm pretty sure none of them are big enough to hide this. But I, I honestly don't care. This whole sequence is also just freaking visually stunning and brilliant. I love the idea that the Eiffel Tower looks the way it does, not because it's just weird architecture, but because it has an engineering purpose to be a scanner antenna and a launch pad. I love that. So the evil robots attack. Uh, They don't accomplish much because the rocket's taking off, 
it gets up near the moon, then turns around and plows right back into Earth because they need to build up a lot of speed to punch through dimensions, and they crash into Tomorrowland. But not Hooray. the Tomorrowland that we know, the Tomorrowland as it actually is. Yeah, the hmm. uh, old, rusty, disheveled. Uh, the People Mover shows up, which I appreciated. Um, and David Nix appears, coming out in a future space coat, apparently. Yeah, remember to drink your milkshakes, kids. Uh, that way you can live forever, apparently. Yeah, he's a little upset that they just launched an antique rocket out of the middle of Paris, but I guess it doesn't matter now. Also, who's the girl? Frank introduces her, says she can fix everything. What, you ask? The world! Ha-ha! <laughs> she made the monitor drop a percentage of a percentage, so, you know... Something's happening. We're, we're still finding things out at this point. Uh, David thinks that that's impossible, but they agree to go to the monitor to see what they can do. They head to the giant, they head to the giant ominous floating ball in the sky and take up an elevator. They see ghost images of the future. Uh, Casey loses her super important hat from before, but now it doesn't matter. Uh, turns out that the Tomorrowland engineers or Imagineers, as you might say, have uh, mastered tachyon scanning which is a faster-than-light particle that lets you see the past and future. And they've installed it inside Evil Epcot. Yeah. <laughs> so they go to the big ball, and um, a, a cylinder, we're going to call it a cylinder, grows out of the floor, and Frank starts fondling the tip of the cylinder in a way that, that, that made me giggle, because I am juvenile. <laughs> Just, you know, give it a good petting over here. Yeah. The original Google Earth interface. <laughs> so they ask Cassie what they should look at, and she says to look up Cape Canaveral, and she watches her past. Then they see the future, where they are tearing down the space platform thing. There's some static, and then moving past the static, the world has ended. There are explosions, there's wars, uh, riots, Cassie's house is burned down, you know, all the bad things. And then flooded. Uh, dang it, Dr. Manhattan, why'd you have to do this? Yeah, because space squids will bring the world together. So, uh, Nick says that this is inevitable. The world ends sometime in the next 58 days after the static starts. They don't know because there's static. They can't get an exact thing. Uh, but Nick doesn't care because, you know, their world's going to end. They're in this little alternate dimension thing. So, you know, that's fine. Not my problem. Also, everyone on Earth is a savage, so no immigration. Well, that's kind of mean. Yeah, Casey uh, yells that you can fix every, anything if you're willing to try, um, and that nothing is inevitable. This makes the simulation flicker for a second to a really nice day with no burned house. Um, but Nix is somewhat unimpressed by this like minor variation in the inevitable, uh, so he knocks them all out. Dang it, tuning forks. So they wake up the next morning waiting to be deported. Casey is upset that the Land of Hope is actually a depressing lie, um, and that you shouldn't zap the idea of hope into someone's head unless you can back it up. Oh wait, you can zap ideas into people's heads. The tachyon thing isn't just making predictions about the end of the world, it's putting the idea into everyone's head, and it's making people giving up, uh, thus creating the future that it's predicting. That's how Frank was able to see everything in our world. Because the world was saturated with predictions of the end. It made the end feel like an inevitability. Dang it. Agent Smith is trying to tell us that, you know, what, do you hear that sound? It's the sound of inevitability. But Casey's like, no, my name is actually not Neo, it's Casey. But anyway. 
So they're taken to be transported back to Earth, where Nyx is going to dump them on a small island somewhere so they can't uh, interfere with anything. Um, she tells Nyx that they figured it out, though, but he doesn't care, because as Frank does another big reveal, uh, Nyx is doing it on purpose. Nyx does a really big speech about how if you saw the future and it was awful, wouldn't you want to, you know, tell someone? But how could you convince them of anything? Because they wouldn't believe you. So what if you just beamed that news straight into everybody's head and showed them that everything was going to, to be destroyed? But instead of wanting to fix things, um, turns out that people just like it and make video games and books and movies and embrace the apocalypse because it's a version of the future that doesn't need you to do anything about it. I am just so glad that we got uh, that we got Hugh Laurie giving this speech. I can't see any other actor giving it as effectively as he did. He does not get enough get enough chances to play villains, um, yes. and I and I wish he got more chances to do it because it is such a compelling portrayal you 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 don't feel like what he's saying is evil or mustache twirling you really understand that he he got to this point out of sheer frustration with the state of the world and i can really relate to uh re relate to the performance he gives agreed so uh, frank listens goes to shake nix's hand and starts messing with his smartwatch that apparently controls the elevator he tells casey to grab the bomb you know remember we had a bomb and go up the elevator mm -hmm. Uh, she tries to work out how to turn the bomb on, but then she sees her future self do it in a flash forward, so uh, we've bootstrapped the bomb. It's the best way to do it, really. Nyx fights Frank. Uh, some big robots join in and fight Athena, who's holding her own pretty easily, because I guess the androids are way better than the giant construction bots. Frank and Nyx... so much smaller. Mm -hmm. Frank and Nyx wind up trapped back through the portal on Earth for a bit. Uh, Nyx does manage to make the elevator fall, though, and now Casey has an active bomb and nowhere to put it. So they throw it through the Earth portal, and uh, Frank and Nyx run back in right before the explosion goes off, which knocks the portal down onto Nyx. Well, I guess he's going to need that cane after all. Yes. Yeah. Once again, a Hugh Laurie roll ends with his leg crushed. <laughs> so Athena sees a flash forward of Frank getting shot by Nyx, so she jumps in front of the blast. And uh, being a robot, it doesn't disintegrate her, but she is dying. She tells Frank they don't have any time to repair her, even though she is going to stay around in monologue for an awfully long time. Well, robots, you know, they got to power down. You got to shut all the programs. You got to, you know, give out your last words, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, she plays a bunch of old journals that she wrote about Frank when he was a child, saying that he needed a friend to believe in him. And she put off telling him she was a robot so long that it just became sort of awkward. Um, Frank isn't really angry anymore because, you know, the dying. And Athena then realizes because they no longer have a bomb, they can use her self-destruct mechanism to blow up the scanner. So Frank grabs a jetpack and carries her up to the orb. We get a jetpack callback, you know, because there's just jetpack yep. stations hanging around now, which unfortunately don't look retro-futuristic anymore. Just no, they just packs. look normal future. They look normal future futuristic. Yeah. <laughs> Dang it, why did you have to update the, the, the hardware design, guys? Come on. Now, Athena says that she never laughed at any of his jokes because he's not funny. And then they have a tearful goodbye and blow up a big ball that falls down and crushes Nyx. Whoops, uh, another body. Yeah. Out of the pile. So, destroying the evil tower worked. Earth does not get destroyed. Um, and whatever unspecified apocalypse was going to happen was prevented with the power of positive thinking. Um, so now Excellent. they've got to well, figure out what to do. So they make an army of child robots 
And that's who they've been telling this entire story to. And they go out to collect people, say the best people, the people who will feed the right wolf. Which I people hate. <laughs> I hate the, the wolf thing, I'm sorry. <laughs> the people who will believe in optimistic outcomes are possible. Yeah, we can make the better future for everybody. So uh, let's get to it, guys. Come on. And again, the uh, like the I, I keep mentioning sequences that I absolutely love in this movie, but this the ending sequence is also one of those. Um, we have we haven't talked about the score yet, but this this is Michael Giacchino, who who I guarantee you know uh, you know from plenty of other movies. He he is he is one of the most prolific. Uh, film composers uh, working in Hollywood today, winner of several Grammys and composer of several soundtracks that you definitely know. But the uh, the way that they show the pin distribution for to this cross-section of humanity across all different disciplines and create creative and technical uh, fields uh, combined with the score is just such a wonderfully put-together sequence, and I, I always end this film crying because of it. And you can, you know, we've already established we have these uh, portals we can, you know, basically link up to anywhere on Earth. So we use those to uh, get people from all corners to drop in and say, hey, guess what? We're going to build the future together. Yeah, we end with a bunch of people standing in, you know, that field from before. So I guess one can assume that they're going to walk into a few walls and then uh, then probably see the ad. <laughs> Uh, there was one guy who was near a car who's probably going to die because, you know, he's going to wander into traffic, but that's fine. But there's a lot of people. A couple of them can wander into traffic when they don't know how the pins work. Well, uh, hopefully they're uh, smart enough to figure it out faster than Casey was. Yeah. Yeah. Tomorrowland. So, yeah, that's uh, that's Tomorrowland, a, uh, a goddamn beautiful mess that I... Um, I I watch several times a year and is my go-to whenever I feel uh, disabused or discouraged about the state of the world. It is uh, it is just optimism in film form, and I am so thankful that it exists. Yeah, I really can actually get behind the message, uh, you know, and it is something that, unfortunately, we don't necessarily have enough out there. Yeah, you know, there is, you know, plenty of, you know, you know schlock of various sorts. There's stuff that's you know uh, you know cash-ins for this or that there's stuff that's trying to have a message and you know sometimes it's hit or miss but there's not really things that are like you know we can have a better future we just have to sort of get get to work on it we don't yeah. have you know you know uh, laying down on the job it ain't how it's done and i don't know if you remember in in 2015 where the world was but do you do you did either of you see this in theaters when it came out alas i did not no, I remember um, seeing the ads for it all over, but no. When you were seeing ads for it, do you remember what other films were in theaters at the time? Mm, I the do not. The number uh, one opening the weekend before this film came out was Mad Max Fury Road. So an ah, excellent yes. film, also a, a brilliant film, but undeniably um, a post-apocalyptic film, a film, that, a film that finds optimism in a, in a hellscape, but is unmistakably a apocalyptic film and then the week after this film came out um the number one opening was avengers age of ultron which is also uh apocalyptic themed with the rise of artificial intelligence and the uh, and, and 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 the robot apocalypse again an excellent film that i absolutely love but just by the intricacies of release schedule this film about how 
the most popular media is the most pessimistic media ended up laced between two films with apocalyptic themes. I think that is just a, a brilliant commentary on why the world needed this film, especially in 2015. Yeah. I can agree with that. I think it's kind of interesting. and I think you two should get to talk a bit about why, how you like the optimistic message because I had a completely different takeaway from the movie and I actually very much disliked it. <laughs> Which I don't want to go attacking one of your favorite films, so whereas we can have a discussion. I am used to people disliking this film. I, 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 I want you to be authentic with your opinions. It's, it's your podcast, and, I, and I'm, I'm, not, it's, I'm not going to stop liking it because other people express dissatisfied opinions with it. So please, please, don't, don't worry so, about that at all, because I'm, I'm, I'm used to being in the position of being this film's defender. <laughs> So, uh, Gepwin, before you you know give us more details, I'm going to guess it's the sort of same reason folks have uh, of late decided mm, maybe Kutzkagart or Kutzkagart or however it's pronounced is maybe not all that good anyway. Which one was Kutzkagart? <laughs> it's it's the most popular science communication channel on YouTube by like a factor of by, by at least a factor of three in terms of subscriber count. Okay. I'm actually uh, not if you've ever familiar. seen. This. <laughs> cutesy, cutesy animated videos featuring uh, bright multicolored birds. birds. Oh, that one. Um, okay, yeah. 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 Yeah, that guy had an, some... An excellent uh, channel. An excellent channel that puts out really good content, but the, the backlash to it is um, who's funding this? Uh, mostly um, mostly people who have a neoliberal, neoliberal mm-hmm. ge- agenda to, to push. That guy's had um, some weird takes, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the neoliberalism is a particular through line of it um it is of course um atlas shrugged disney edition is mm. one of the first things which brad bird's been accused of several times in various he movies he has one of my favorite youtube critics actually uh, uh, d- described this film as waltz gulch which i thought was just a perfect encapsulation <laughs> of that of that criticism um and yes i i can absolutely see that and bird ha- bird has been criticized as having objectivist themes before but it's important to point out that Bird has flat out denied an objectivist reading of this film. He yeah. thinks people who people who see that um, are misreading it, and I'm inclined to agree with him for reasons that I'll that, that I'll go into. But pl- please c- continue. Well, we we can talk about whether see, this is an objectivist later. I see that it's not feeling, trying to be fully objectivist, and it is trying to, in fact, turn around the message from Atlas Shrugged. Where if people who aren't familiar with Atlas Shrugged, because I hope you're not. Um, the there's a lot of superfluous stuff in that book but the the main part that's that's necessary for this reading is um, all of the smartest most special most intelligent people in the world are taken to their own little community where they essentially just sit there and watch the world burn because when they left everything shut down because they were the only people capable of doing anything good in the world and then they come back and redesign it to their own capitalist wants um i see that this is basically taking something akin to that premise and then showing up and going screw you john galt i can actually fix the world the way it is now and then going to do that instead of letting it all burn behind you so i can and the difference Hmm. The, 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 the change that I think really makes that a substantive change rather than just a superficial change is a- Anne Rand did not portray intelligence and talent and drive as something that could be chosen, acquired, or learned. She never portrayed any character. If you start, if you start 
as an antagonist in one of her stories, you end as an antagonist in one of her stories. Getting getting a pin or an invitation to Galt's Gulch is something that is inherent in who you are. It's not something that you can develop or choose. Whereas Brad Bird goes out of his way multiple times in this film to establish that the reason Casey is special and all of the people who get invited to Tomorrowland are special isn't because they're smart or talented or inherent anything inherent about them it's because they look at the world and choose to see it as improvable as something that can be fixed the thing that makes people special in tomorrowland is something that they have control over unlike the thing that makes people special in any given rand book now i do see that as a way to look at the thing i do think that one of my main criticisms with how the movie is portraying itself at the end is a necessary problem with setting this movie up as a possible start of a franchise as all things must be because the actual way to turn that around would be to not continue perpetuating exactly the same system that got them into trouble in the first place and actually opening things up or merging the worlds or bringing this out as something that can inspire and change people instead of having exactly the same thing before which is yes they are saying that people bettered themselves but you still at the end of the day wind up with the message of there are a select group of people who are just better whether it's innate or something that they got through life who are the ones who get to go participate in this utopian society and the rest of us can just go fuck off for the most part so well, we don't. It, uh, we don't does, know. It does uh, beg sorry. the. Sorry, go ahead, it, you know, you know, it very much does beg the. Uh, the you know, okay, uh, what next in order to sort of, you know, not fall into that, uh, you know, sort of pattern again? Yes. And I do see that if you if you'd ended the movie with the barrier between worlds has come down, that has a lot of implications for how you would have to move a story forward if you were going to follow this up with anything. So I can see how they were somewhat hamstrung by the studio system at large but that is still where the movie ended i guess i i don't know i believe the intention was for this to become a franchise i'm sure if it was sufficiently lucrative people would have been talking about franchisation but i don't think at least i haven't seen any evidence that it was the intention from the beginning to make it a franchise i think the story ending where it ended is as you pointed out it has to end here if it if it ended um on a specific note of here is what Tomorrowland did to actually to actually fix the world, rather than here is what Tomorrowland will do to fix the world. I think it would have had to add another half hour to the runtime, and it would have ended not on a hope and optimism note, but on a fantasy route, mm-hmm. on on a fantasy note, because it would have um, like it, it. It's like like think about a disaster movie. You don't want to end a disaster movie with a flash forward to. 30 years after the disaster when everything is good you end a disaster movie when things are on the upswing not when things have peaked at have peaked after the recovery i think that that my main criticism so that, that's one of the core things that's the one that everyone talks about you can you can find hundreds of readings of this movie that are talking about its subjectivist themes either intentional or not um and its similarities to atlas shrugged on in basic premise which actually a lot of things have a a lot of fiction handles stuff this way um it's very difficult to get out of the idea that there are just special people in the world 
And that's probably just a story trope that's been repeated without examination so many times that people don't even think of it anymore. Uh, Everybody, you, you know, we're going to follow Harry Potter today and, uh, you know, he's uh, the chosen one. So just don't worry about it. Sorry. So the adventure time go. I think. The- yeah, but that's a that's that, that's a I could understand its persistence in media because you need to in your universe have some reason why the story is happening now and to this person rather than happening before and to everyone. Yeah. Um, and, in, and in this case, I mean, you, you, you can decide it in the Harry Potter way where it's, well, you're just special and it's prophesied, which is, you know, lazy and uninteresting. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I like that in this story, the reason this is happening now and to this person is because the world is, as it is now, very obsessed with apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic futures and pessimism. And this person, among others, has chosen to reject the pessimism of the world in favor of optimism well you have a couple of things there because one you don't get shown others who have particularly rejected the pessimism and the way that they set it up creates a general problem for a reading that this is just something that she's choosing to do because they reveal later that the problem is not in fact an issue of everyone just choosing a pessimistic answer it is in fact a problem that there is a literal machine telling you that everything is terrible and they mm-hmm. don't really do anything to tell us why, aside from a reading that she's just special. She is the only person in the world that seems to be not as affected by the effects of this machine telling everyone that this that everything is terrible. And I think the re- I, I think the way to read that is to read well, what what do we think the um what what do we think the spectacle the the device that is broadcasting this apocalyptic future what do we think it is meant to be a stand-in for I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say well the spectacle is meant to be a stand-in for social media for for classical media for anything that is meant to have a negativity bias in which case the thing that Casey is allegorically doing is just choosing to be skeptical of the prevailing narrative but i think that the the main issue that i wind up with is in fact the criticism of post-apocalyptic media in and of itself that this movie is hanging a lot of stuff on Mm -hmm. um i do want to call out this isn't my particular point but i did see someone make a very good criticism that i would like to also include that um a movie like this probably would have served itself better to be an optimistic movie rather than spend a long time complaining about how there are no longer optimistic movies like you could have made a fun uh, retro future sci-fi movie that was inspiring and optimistic and cool and people probably would have liked that a bit more and it would still be a commentary on post-apocalyptic fiction and nihilism they they might have, but I don't think it would make the necessary distinction between just being an optimist and being anti-pessimistic. Um, just showing just showing a bright, beautiful tomorrow, um, and having that be the setting for your story is present in a lot of science fiction. I mean, any Star Trek is let us just show let let us just show the optimistic future and, and engage in interesting stories there. But I think it's rarer in science fiction to not just show an optimistic future, but to explicitly refute pessimistic, pessimistic futures and post-apocalyptic stories. 
Um, and I think that is a necessary part of the way this story was told. If it mm. was just a bright, beautiful future, it wouldn't have had the necessary commentary. But I think that the refutation itself, uh, the feeling of needing to refute post-apocalyptic fiction, is a necessary misunderstanding of a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction. And it kind of calls into question a central thing that you wind up with with any of these sort of future movies um, post-apocalyptic or not, which is whose future is being represented here. Because one of the things that you get in a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction, there's two things, there's two points that I have. Post-apocalyptic fiction specifically, and then the purpose that we're misreading in post-apocalyptic fiction and dystopian fiction. Because a lot of post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic fiction is yes there was an end of the world in some capacity Ma massive disaster that we couldn't prevent for a variety of reasons now in a lot of post-apocalypse fiction those reasons are massively structural that people had very little overall influence on and destroyed things in a way that we are one meant to learn from especially in things like um Mad Max, the original movie, which has kind of gotten lost, showed a lot of decline of society because of various social and structural issues. Um, Things the, are falling apart. The bombs hadn't even fallen yet. Yeah. The uh, Fallout series, which is one of the big ones, uh, shows a world in which um, capitalism took over to such an extent that the resource wars basically destroyed any semblance of a society that was left, even though the society that was left was already of the brink of collapse anyway, because of over-exploitation. Um, but quite apart from it being something that you are meant to learn from, which is something that maybe we're missing in a little bit of modern reading and interpretation, um, the future that it presents is not necessarily completely bad. Because one of the things that happens in post-apocalyptic fiction is the entire world did not end, the systems that existed in the world ended. And now that all the systems are gone, you have something different, which is in fact one of the reasons that a lot of queer people specifically, which the community that I'm most familiar with, are drawn to pieces of post-apocalyptic fiction. Because it's presenting you with a world where no one cares about this stuff anymore. Like, the Fallout games are presented in a pretty dark future where a lot of terrible things are happening and it's an actual struggle to survive, but there's no more structural racism. There's a lot less sexism, even though it does exist um, in some of the games. But sexism has changed. Structural racism is gone. Um, homophobia seems to be no longer existent. Like, mm -hmm. the structure of the society has changed in a way that actually works better for a lot of people. One of but the in order to get... So, sorry, go ahead. No. One of the things that movies like this have is a fundamental fear of wanting to change any of our base structural problems. In fact, this movie does go this movie specifically goes so far as to not even begin to critique anything about why the world would end other than everyone is pessimistic about it, which is drawing a lot of attention away from any of the reasons that the world might actually be in trouble which there's plenty of. 
And I understand it wanting to make a broader message and not call it anything specifically, but by getting just into the world is ending because you're pessimistic about it is really kind of putting it on to the people who are often pessimistic because there are a lot of systems specifically designed to keep them down and affect them very personally. And that's very, that's all very true. There are a lot of ways that the world could end where an individual has absolutely no control over the nature of that ending or ability to prevent it. And that's inherently scary. I completely agree that w one of the reasons that dystopia and post-apocalyptic fiction has such prevalence in fictional media isn't just because it's a great way to have an excuse to build a world that operates on different rules. It's a great, it, it, it's an efficient way in your story to eliminate what would seem to be an involatile assumption in the real world that we exist in today. But what I don't think most apocalyptic fiction properly grapples with when they rebuild these fictional worlds in to, to, to be better worlds than the one before is that in order to get to that better world you had to expose your world to the worst possible holocaust the 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 end of civilization as we know it is not it's not a cool thing to be hoped for even if we can find moments of humanity and endearing stories and compelling stories to be told in the rubble after after the bombs have fallen so what i what i want what i'm glad that tomorrowland does is it acknowledges that you can you don't have to have the end of the world in order to have a new world it is possible to see a better world a more just world a more equitable world without completely destroying the world that we inhabit because no matter how you structure it the destruction of everything in the world is going to would would be a horrible experience to live through for all people it would not be something that is worth it because the world after it might in many generations be better i think that kind of mindset is something that doesn't go examined enough in post-apocalyptic and dystopic fiction it because the the cataclysm is so far in the past of these dystopias that they're it's something that you can just treat as part of the scenery, part of the historical context, in the same way we today might treat, you know, World War II. I, I, I would flat out reject any reading that said World War II was horrible, but it's okay because from it we got, you know, modern feminism you are, you are or, yeah. or, or, or anything like that. We got a lot of great things out of World War II, but any any fiction that tried to portray World War II as a good thing because we got these good things out of it would I think be a misreading of history. And even though the apocalypse hasn't happened and is not history, in the same way I would read any fiction that says the apocalypse was terrible, but look at these great things that came out of it as kind of missing the more important point that the apocalypse is terrible and is not something that we should want in the real world at all. Indeed. Uh, in fact, uh, this kind of reminds me of uh, some of the, I guess, online discourse over things like doomerism, and the uh, more, I guess, active version of it, of uh, accelerationism, where in order to get our better future, we have to end the world. We have to have the worst, th uh, you know, th uh, things come about because that's the only way to wake people up. And that's kind of ludicrous because 
one, if the worst things happen, you're not going to have any control over what happens after that is, you know, you know, you know, you know, compared to what you got, you know, now. Uh, so there's no guarantee that, you know, your, pro your promise about how the things are going to eventually turn around, you know, after everyone's dead, uh, is going to be any better than they are, you know, in, in terms of fighting for a better future now without that sort of a ridiculous uh, level of destruction. Uh, and, you know, the other part is, you know, independent of what you want in terms of outcomes, there's a whole part about a lot of people dying and being hurt and all that along the way. And it's kind of unethical to want that to be part of your plan in general. Mm -hmm. I would I would ask more storytellers to try to build worlds that are the way we want the world to be things that worlds that lack structural racism and structural sexism and structural homophobia w worlds that lack these things that didn't require the destruction of the world in order to get there i understand the appeal of it it's a very compelling story mechanism you don't have to explain the the intricacies of every law that was passed and every vote that was had and every incremental improvement in technology that got to the world that you did. You could just say, nope, hard reset, the bombs fell, the sea levels rose, the earth burned, and here's what arose from the ashes. But if every, if every good future that we portray in our future, or even if a substantial number of these glorious futures that we portray in our fiction requires an apocalypse or a dystopia to get there i i do worry that creates a implicit assumption in how we see the future that i am thankful that tomorrowland kind of refutes i think that the the issue that you wind up in there with the way that they've presented the world that they created here is that from the perspective of tomorrowland we are living in the post-apocalypse now because Tomorrowland, the the other dimension, the city, um, seems to be at minimum a hundred years ahead of us technologically, and they currently have the technology and infrastructure to deal with basically every structural problem that we are currently facing. Mm -hmm. And the way, that yeah, they've they've solved aging. They've solved. Uh, they've solved illness they've solved hunger um yeah they they definitely do have the capability to solve all the problems and that are we don't have any we don't have any reason that they aren't doing that we're not presented with any reason they aren't doing that at all we, except for the villain saying we can't well we get the villain saying we can't let people come in here um we don't get him saying we can't fix any of their problems for any particular reason like, you could make a somewhat extension of him saying, you know, no immigration means no helping either. But um, that also leads to an issue of, you know, helping as a way to avoid immigration, which is one of the things that we never talk about yeah. with our anti-immigration stances. And there's a reason that this opinion is put in the mouth of the villain. It's not yes. the message <laughs> of the film. The message of the film is that if, if, if you see yourself as a person who would get a pin, a person who is optimistic, a, part, a person who believes in building better futures, but you don't use that in a way to make this better future come into existence, then you are David Nix. You are the person who has the ability, the drive, the talent, the motivation, and the capability to improve the world, but chooses not to. But the um, thing is that they, they still didn't by the end of the thing. They, like, fix it, as they say, by blowing up a big evil machine. 
they and I think that and I think that's because in in, in order to if the movie were to portray how to fix the world, the movie would have to know how to fix the world. Our world, the real world. Yeah, and but Brad Bird doesn't know that. Nobody knows how. In to do the that. fictional thing that they've set up here, I think that the movie would have a significantly different overall tone and message if the ending of the movie, instead of like them sending out these robots to do more recruitment, which we don't know enough about the tomorrow man world to even know how that functioned before what they've changed why that society collapsed in the first place because there doesn't seem to be any reason that that society shouldn't have worked just because ours isn't um we don't have enough information to go off of that like i agree that you always end these sort of movies on the upswing note not everything is fixed but you're getting there but instead of them actually fixing anything they start doing a we can recruit people to figure out how to fix things but you already have the technology to fix a lot of things you already have the way to fix a lot of things you could have ended the movie on them setting up these robots to send out aid packages to go influence governments slightly to send out milkshakes to people or medicine to the third world like you could send them you could have set up something else at the ending instead of we're going to continue doing the same thing that we were doing before. You could have, but do, answer me this. Do, do you think the movie would have, the movie might have wrapped up more neatly and more satisfactorily if it ended there, but do you think it would have ended um, with such a call to action to its audience if it ended by actually showing the specific solutions in implementation? But because see, the movie does the, the, impl- the, the solutions that they would have had would be science fiction solutions. They wouldn't be real solutions. They wouldn't be right, exactly. actual exactly. Like, things to do. Like, this is still a nothing to do. They, they, I don't, would, they, they would have been food, food replicators and magic med beds. I don't they, understand. They have... I don't fully understand what the call to action the movie is actually saying is, other than be generally optimistic. I would say the call to action of the movie is not just be optimistic, but be actively critical of those who insist that pessimism is the correct mindset. Um, it's and, and if you do see yourself as one of the people who is optimistic and believes in better futures, don't be a David Nix, be a Casey Newton or a Frank Walker. Be a person who enables other people to see the world as improvable, as better, as something that can be acted upon for the betterment of all humankind um and don't do what was done for 80 percent of the movie which is tomorrowland as this self-contained isolationist waltz gulch you see the thing is that they aren't they don't interact with the rest of the world enough for most of this to come across because you use the most you see of our world is Casey, who's already the super special one who's going to fix everything in the movie, and then all these people at the end who apparently are also all super special people who are going to fix everything. Like, the message that they had was end the pessimism machine, not I need to inspire people to do better. Like, if she had hijacked the signal told or told people that things didn't have to be as bad done something in that vein it might have had more of a you need to be an inspiring person sort of message i think that 
Also, one of the things that, that I feel like is possibly hindering a reading of this is that it's actually not a particular critique of pessimism. It's a critique of fatalism, which... That um, too. You're absolutely right. It definitely is a critique of that. Which, um, just yeah. to define terms, because I've seen people use this a little bit wrong, fatalism doesn't mean fatal as in fatality. It means fate as in predestination. Yeah, the, dif the difference is I think plenty of people are... I, I, th I think people, plenty of people are aware of post-apocalypticism and, um, and dystopian, dystopianism, but I don't think people are consciously aware of fatalism and what it means to be a fatalist, which is why, yeah, you, you, I, I think you're right. I think this film is critical of fatalism, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it's the central theme. Because the, well, the machine that they have is saying, here is the future, we have determined it. And then everyone just believes it because they have their predestined fate. Right. Um, well, because, because they are powerless, because they have been, people have been conditioned to believe that they are powerless to change the state of the world. Which is kind of interesting because if you're dealing with fatalism, you could say exactly the same thing from the other direction, which is if you told everyone you were fated and destined for everything to be fine, then they're equally going to stop trying because mm -hmm. they've been fated. <laughs> yep, which is which is a real problem on the um on the technological optimists side as yep. well. <laughs> Plenty of technological optimists believe that things just get better i i definitely do believe that things just get better i think things get better i am a technological optimist but it's not but it, i don't believe that things just get better i understand that things get better because blood sweat and tears hard work by technologists inventors activists artists everyone working together and making a lot of painful mistakes is how the world gets better and there's a, a conditional uh, you know part of that that you need to make sure it's true first. Now, one thing that I do think is interesting in the speech that Nix gives is he does point out the actual problem that we are dealing with. Um, the solution that they, that they proffer does nothing to deal with that issue. Because at one point in his speech, he says, if you know the world is going to end, how would you convince anyone to believe you or change anything because right. one of the actual problems that we have with the world coming to an end is the people in positions in, of power have a vested interest in either not believing it or not doing anything about it and so what so what is your response to that when you see the world is when, when you see people in positions of power ignoring data facts and 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 evidence what is your innate response to that change the optimization formula <laughs> yeah F identify what's wrong with that system and fix it but not accept accept that this is just the way it is and there's nothing that i can do but one of the things that you run into especially since as you were saying there's a definite critique of post-apocalyptic fiction in that it's ignoring the harm that can be done by a collapse of civilization. But one of the things that he even said in the speech is, do you riot? Do you go do these things? Like we've had protests, we see them getting shut down. We see a lot of ways of trying to change things shutting down and some things working. Um, but if you need a structural change at the level that 
things like this movie are demonstrating that you need such a massive structural change they some of the things that could be necessary and i'm not necessarily advocating for but i've read some pretty compelling uh theories depending could in fact be revolution violence destruction a lot of the things that this movie is basically saying you would get around through positive thinking i think that's because the fiction that portrays violence revolution and the overflowing of existing power structures tends to overwhelmingly focus on the bright noble futures that are enabled by those and tends to not focus on the fact that in order to get through that phase change millions of people had to die um, and that's a that's a fair way to tell a story but I also think it can be a blind spot when we say it is necessary to tear down all power structures in order to build them more equitably we uh, if we don't acknowledge the fact that ending civilization in order to build another one is still going to end civilization and that is going to do an immeasurable amount of harm i think that can be a blind spot in the way we portray these fictional futures but i also think that just saying that um magical thinking is the way to deal with things has equal oh, totally. problems and totally which is hmm. Which is which is a valid critique of the of the techno optimist movement. It is it, it, it is that the techno optimism can be uncritical about the about what practical steps actually need to be taken. It can just treat technology as magic and say things will get better because things will get better. Um, that is that is a perfectly valid critique of techno optimism. Which is interesting. Yeah, it's a similar, the... you know, it's a similar critique. I have a lot of uh, other things actually. That you know everyone's perfect system is perfect until you know you actually try to you know put it together, uh, and if you haven't gone through the whole process of understanding how society civilization changes and how you work those levers and you know, push those buttons in order to get to where you actually want to go, things are not going to necessarily get to how you are going to be envisioning them, and thus you might not you know ever get there. So you need to be making sure that you're cognizant of the processes and systems that that exist now in order to basically rework them to yeah. you know leverage them in ways that are going to push you in the right direction i think that possibly one of the main things that i would critique about this movie and its message is that it, it's now being viewed in a time period where america has essentially a cult of magical thinking that this kind of overly enforced optimism as a way to change things has infected American society in such a way that you have magical thinking at the highest levels of society. Like a CEO of a powerful corporation goes to seminars about how to get his workers to believe that the business will do better because that will in some intangible way make the business do better. Like, this is an actual problem that we are dealing with now. So the movie kind of, the non-specifics, I agree with you, are necessary to get across anything near the point that the movie's trying to make. But the non-specifics also engender a reading of it just saying that magical thinking is the way that things will get fixed because this non-specific apocalypse was completely prevented in 
a couple of months by everyone just believing it would be fine. I would say this apocalypse is prevented in a couple of months, not by people believing it will be fine, but by people just stopping, uh, stop assuming it will be bad. It, it's, it's, it's not, it, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't the belief that the apocalypse was coming that was causing the apocalypse. It was the refusal to acknowledge an alternative. But again, the non-specifics turn it into one and the same. Because since you don't, don't know, since you have no idea what it is, one of the things that they show is tidal waves and flooding, mm-hmm. like natural disasters. Yeah, it is. It, it it is a grab bag of all apocalypses. They include nuclear exchange. They include climate change. They include political upheaval. They, I I I think that's an aesthetic choice because Brad Bird didn't want the movie to become dated. He wanted to, he wanted it to be applicable to all forms of apocalyptic thinking, not just the kind that we would have been thinking about in 2015. Which or, I can or, understand or as a, I understand that as a way to get a more generic message. But that is one of the things that I'm criticizing is that the general the generalness of it leads to that being the in fact only takeaway that positive thinking fixed climate change in two months to be continued but before we get to uh, well the end of the episode actually i wanted to uh jump in here and say that this has been a very good conversation so far and it will continue for a whole other episode so uh tune in uh, next time for that um, I also wanted to, uh, I guess, circle around a little bit before we uh, end things up here. That uh, we have a lot of talk in this uh, uh, discussion between Geppen and uh, Max about, you know, uh, you know, optimism and how it works well with the movie or it doesn't work well with the movie. But I also wanted to sort of, uh, I guess, remind folks that we, the uh, you know, the people that, you know are not in the movie, <laughs> uh, you know, exist in a real world. And uh, we have many opportunities to uh, reject the fatalism, the pessimism, the, the uh, whatever other things that are, uh, you know, uh, you know, attitudes and ideas that are, you know, keeping us from action and take action to change the world, to make things better. Yeah, you know, some problems, yes, are difficult and some of them, in terms of our individual actions are well outside the uh, scope of our ability to, you know, you know, uh, provide a, a complete solution. However, we can still act together. We can still, you know, take steps to make the world a better place. We can, you know, use the levers available to us in our lives and uh, to encourage others to do the same, to, you know, you know, try to, you know, counteract the destructive forces out there and uh, try to have things be better for all of us. Uh, and so uh, we don't usually do calls to action here in Watchers of Tomorrow. We are, I guess, tend towards more, you know, media discussion and uh, highlighting important, you know, ideas and concepts and the like. Um, but uh, this time, I'm, as you know, I'm doing editing of this, these episodes here, that uh, I wanted to sort of take a moment here and uh, remind you that you can still act. You can do things today that will make the world a better place. They might be small things. They could be, you know, as small as holding the door open for somebody. They could be as big as running for office. They could be as, 
you know, uh, I guess every day as, uh, you know, writing a letter to, uh, you know, your uh, local politician or as radical as, well, if you live in a dictatorship, working, you know, quietly to maybe uh, change that. And so there is, you know, risks inherent in everything, of course. And I will leave it up to you to assess those risks, of course. But, you know, if you can do something, please do. So we can have a better tomorrow. Because, you know, there's a lot of things out there that really are kind of scary. And there is a lot of things out there that kind of seems like there isn't enough progress being done on them. But, you know, if we don't, <laughs> if we do not act, then who will? So, you know, get out there. Do something. You know, big, small, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, every little bit helps. And so I hope you'll, uh, you know, get out there and uh, change the world. Maybe just a little bit. Because if we all do it, maybe it'll all uh, come together into uh, not a small change, but a, a really big one. So I hope you guys take care. And uh, I guess next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the rest of the conversation. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbeam, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>